I invite you, if you have your Bibles with you, to turn with me uh, to the book of Galatians. Chapter 2 is where we find ourselves this morning as we continue our study of this first century letter written by the Apostle Paul to the churches of Galatia. There's going to be a slight overlap from where we were last week. Last week, you might remember if you were here, if you were watching online, we read through verses 17. We'll backtrack a little bit today. I want to start at verse 15, not only to give us a little more context into where we're headed today, uh, but also to further press home what Paul is pressing home here in the book of Galatians. Now remember where we have been. This beginning section of this book that we've begun to study has been largely autobiographical. Right? Paul has needed to defend himself his apostleship, his authority from God, his message, a message that we're going to continue to talk about today, that we're going to talk about throughout the entirety of this book, but a message that can be summed up as this, Jesus plus nothing. That is the good news. And Paul also felt the need to defend his mission, a mission that he had received from the Lord to the Gentiles, to those who were not of Jewish descent. All of those things were being attacked and were being questioned. And so part of the defense that Paul has had to make, we looked at it last week, is he had to confront Cephas, Peter, this pillar in the Jerusalem church concerning how Peter was treating Gentile Christians. Remember this group called the Circumcision Party had come into Jerusalem and had pulled Peter away. Or maybe it was Antioch. He pulled him away from eating with them because they weren't abiding by Jewish customs. And Peter caved and Paul rebuked him for it. And so as we pick up the reading today, we're kind of in the middle of Paul making that case as he has rebuked Peter. And then answering objections that continue to roll in concerning this message that he proclaims. And so Galatians chapter 2, beginning at verse 15 today, and I will read to the end of the chapter. If you would, stand for the reading of God's Word this morning. Galatians chapter 2, verses 15 through 21. Paul says this, "...we ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners." Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ... We too were found to be sinners. Is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live 
but Christ who lives in me and the life I now live in the flesh I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Amen. This is the Word of the Lord. Our world is filled with technical language. And as frustrating as that technical language can be, particularly if you are looking in a manual, trying to fix something, trying to put something together, we've got to recognize that technical language is not just helpful, it's necessary. We need precision. So for instance, in the, in the medical field, a mass in your body can either be benign or it can be malignant. In order to determine which, you've got to get a biopsy. Technical language. In certain fields of engineering, there is the Faraday constant. If you're in computer science, you need to know what an API is and a URL is. In the field of law, there are such things as depositions and a habeas corpus. You get the point. Technical language. This passage I just read to you, really last week is when we first heard some of these words, but we read them again this week. Paul uses a bit of, let's just say, technical language. Precise language. That all we who call upon the name of Jesus Christ need to know about and need to understand. And even those who weren't here this, who, even those who are here this morning who don't know Jesus, my hope is that as you understand these words, that you will see the glory in them. Two core Christian doctrines are spoken of here in these verses. And they can be summed up in two words. The word justification and the word union. Justification and union. But don't be turned away by what you may perceive as a technical term or the technical nature of those terms. My hope is that you will be amazed at the realities that are behind these more technical terms. Two truths for us to meditate on this morning. Two realities that are really at the heart of the Christian life. At the heart of what it means to be a Christian. And the first one is this. Only Jesus makes us right with God. Only Jesus makes us right with God. As we begin to unpack that statement, that point, let me introduce another slightly technical word, at least a word that we don't use very often in our everyday common speech. It's the word that's found at the end of our passage in verse 21, the word righteousness. We've sung that word earlier. We've confessed that word earlier. Righteousness may seem to us, to many of us, like an explicitly Christian term. But it's not. When you think about righteousness, 
deep down, whether consciously or unconsciously, everyone is seeking righteousness. Whether you are doing it acknowledging the God who created you or not, we are all looking for rightness. For right relationship. That's one sense of the word. But we also sense that we need to live to a standard, whatever we might think that standard is. That's another sense of that word. That standard is often acceptance by others or some kind of internal peace and contentment within ourselves. We want to know that we're okay. Beyond okay, we want to know that, we, that we're right. But as Paul uses the word righteousness here, and as it ought to be understood in our context, it, he uses it in the truest sense of the word. We strive to be right with God. The epitome of rightness. The epitome of righteousness. The God who is holy. The God we sang about who is set apart. And our default strategy as humans is to work to achieve that rightness. By doing good. By being faithful. By giving generously and and sacrificially to others. By living to His standard and having the record to prove it. Well, Paul proclaims here and elsewhere through this word justification, which appears in its various forms. We're justified. It appears in its verb form several times in this passage. Paul proclaims here through the word justification how righteousness, being right with God, actually comes to us. And it's, it's a concept, it's a word that is central to Paul's writing and to his thought. You see, justification is a legal term. It's a term that is borrowed from the courts. And it has to do with one standing before God. How one is viewed by God. By the judge of the universe. By the standard of what is right. Every religion in our world says in order to gain favor with God, you've got to work at it. You've got to get it done. Whether it be through the five pillars of faith, whether it be through the sevenfold path, or whatever list. In the Judaism of Paul's day, righteousness Standing before God was thought by many to be attained through the law. There are various ways to look at the law in the Old Testament. The Jewish law, there was the ceremonial law, the the feasts and the sacrifices and the customs. Circumcision was one of those. It's come front and center in this letter. There was the civil law of God, how God wanted His people to live their lives, and then there was the moral law, the Ten Commandments. Pastor Philip Ryken in his commentary on Galatians quotes from an epitaph discovered on a first century tomb in Israel, and it says this, Here lies Regina, 
She will live again, return to the light again, for she can have hope that she will rise to the life promised as a real assurance to the worthy and the pious in that she has deserved to possess an abode in the hallowed land. This your piety has assured you. This your chaste life. This your love for your people. This your observance of the law. Your devotion to wedlock. The glory of which was dear to you. For all these deeds, your hope for the future is assured. That's how many in Judaism thought. Fast forward to 21st century America, and I think we can find that same sentiment in plenty of people. If I just do good, keep my nose clean, stay out of a certain tier of badness, I'll be okay. I'll be right. Paul proclaims to the church here as plainly as he can that the law, that your goodness as much as you try will never make you right with God. Only Jesus makes you right with God. That is the foundation of our faith. It's the foundation of the Gospel. It's what you cannot get wrong. The law has served its purpose. It has shown us that we can't make it, that we can't keep it, that we need a Savior. That doesn't mean that Paul just throws the law away. No, the law still has purpose. Not the Old Testament ceremonial law that the Jewish followed, but the, the, the law that is a reflection of God in our lives. The Ten Commandments, for instance, which Jesus takes and, and heightens the obedience to, that law still applies, but we must get the order correct. It is not believe, obey, and be saved. It is believe, be saved, and then obey. We are sinners when we're saved and we never stop being sinners. As Martin Luther rediscovered hundreds of years ago, we are at the same time justified and a sinner. Brothers and sisters, I know that most of you know this. You've heard this. You believe it. But you and I so easily slip into old ruts of thinking that we need to perform in order to be accepted. And that's why we never in our Christian lives leave the Gospel behind. The Gospel is not something we we accept, invite Jesus into our hearts, as is often said, put Him in our back pocket and we're good. Listen carefully to these formulations from hundreds of years ago. Technical language for sure, but wonderful, accessible realities behind it. I know many of you have heard these statements. Hear them again. Some of you have never heard these statements. Listen carefully. The Westminster Shorter Catechism, a document from our Presbyterian heritage from the 17th century. What is justification? 
Justification is an act of God's free grace wherein He pardons all our sins and accepts us as righteous in His sight only for the righteousness of Christ imputed to us and received by faith alone. That is good news. Heidelberg Catechism, question and answer 60. How are you right with God? The answer is this. Only by true faith in Jesus Christ, even though my conscience accuses me of having grievously sinned against all of God's commandments and have never kept any of them, and even though I am still inclined toward all evil, nevertheless, without my deserving it at all, out of sheer grace, God grants and credits to me the perfect satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Christ as if I had never sinned nor been a sinner, as if I had been as perfectly obedient as Christ was obedient for me. All I need to do is to accept this gift with a believing heart. Amen? That is good news. In Jesus, only in Jesus, are we made right with God. It's the point that Paul is first pressing home this morning. But the objections came to this. In the first century, this teaching went against generations and generations of Jewish thought and of Jewish tradition. So in verse 17, Paul has to answer one such objection. It's a difficult verse to understand. I want to try to explain it to you. Let me read it again. Verse 17, he says, But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. What exactly is he saying there? Well, our first step in understanding what he's saying there is understanding how he is using the word sinners. He's using sinners in the same way it's used back in verse 15 where it says Gentile sinners. We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. You see, Paul is referring to what the Gentiles were commonly called. By the Judaizers clinging to their old ingrained perspective as these Gentiles lived outside of the borders of Jewish custom, they were sinners. And so what Paul is saying here is that as those freely justified by Christ, having the freedom to eat with Gentiles... If, if you guys want to label me and Peter as sinners, we'll take that label. Because it's not a sin to be a sinner in that sense. But don't take that label and say because we are followers of Jesus that we're somehow mixing Jesus with sin. He says, no, you're misunderstanding It's not a sin to be labeled a sinner in this way. Christ has freed us from the law, but that doesn't make Christ a party to sin. And then to underscore this freedom that Paul has, he says in verse 18, for if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. What did Paul tear down? It was actually God who tore it down through Paul. 
That notion of being made right with the law. That whole idea is done. Paul has leveled it. I'm not going to rebuild that again. If I try to be justified by the law, I'm just going to prove myself to fall short. To not be able to do it. Why? Because only Jesus makes us right with God. That's the first reality. And the second reality is this. In Jesus, we die to live. In Jesus, we die to live. If you've ever watched the the TV show Shark Tank, there is a a shark, well, they're all pretty brutal, but there's one shark in particular that says this brutal phrase often if folks refuse to take his deal and they decide to turn and walk out that door or to go with another investor, he says to them very glibly, very arrogantly, you're dead to me. You're dead to me. And what he means in his pompous way is, I'm not going to think about you anymore. I'm not going to have regrets that I should have offered you a different deal. I've moved on. I have forgotten about you. Verses 19 and 20 of Galatians chapter 2 are some of the most powerful and memorable verses in the entire Bible. And in many ways, they are the sum of the Christian life. A life that comes through death. Right? That's where Paul begins in verse 19 when he says to the law, you're dead to me. You're no longer under, I'm no longer under your power. You can't place your demands on me. I'm not going to try to justify myself and make myself right before God through you. You're dead to me. And this death to the law comes because of Jesus' death by crucifixion. A death that Paul says is His death alongside of His Savior. What he means by that is that we legally died with Christ. The wages of sin is death. And that death Over 2,000 years ago, that death, the death of Jesus, paid our debt. And now as a result, we are dead to sin. We are dead to the law's demands. This isn't a subjective experience. This is an objective reality. And this isn't an abstract or theological thought. This is a very personal thing. What does Paul say in verse 20? Christ loved me. Gave Himself for me. As a result of that death, what it accomplished in my identification with it, I, not just some number in a lineup of billions, but I have a completely different standing before a holy God. I love the way Tim Keller says it in one of his sermons. Tim Keller's one of the pastors in our denomination. He says this, how does God look at the Son? Think of how His heart bursts when He looks at the brilliance of Jesus' humility and His love and His compassion and His courage and His wisdom and His power. 
Now get this. When you become a Christian, He looks at you the same way. Paul continues in these verses moving from death to life. The old me with its sinful priorities, with its selfish agenda and pursuit is no longer what I'm about. I'm dead to me. I'm dead to the law. I'm dead to sin, but I still live. I live because Christ lives in me, because Christ rose from the grave. I rose from the grave to new life in Him. Paul uses this phrase, in Him, in Christ, and, and its various forms over 160 times in his letters. He loves this idea that we have union with the risen Jesus. Not just that in Jesus we are made right before God, but that in Jesus we live and move and have our being. 2 Corinthians 5.17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. With God's approval mine, with my debt paid, I'm now free to live the life I was created to live. No longer bound by sinful desires. Jesus now sets the agenda. His Spirit now gives me the power. This is what union in Christ is. As one author helpfully says, I think we can't let the work of Christ for us be abstracted from the work of Christ in us. Jesus, while He was on earth, He used the analogy of of a vine and branches, right? John 15, Abide in Me and I in you as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in Me. I am the vine and you are the branches. To know Jesus, to be justified by Jesus, is to be connected to Him like branches to a vine in need of its nourishment to produce fruit, in need of its guidance to know where to grow. In Jesus, we die to live. And that doesn't mean that you're no longer you. No, it means you're you in the truest sense that you can be you. In the way that you were created to be you. Justification. Union. Two technical terms that that we as the church must understand, but two terms that are more than just head knowledge. They are keys for us that unlock a whole new existence. Was I close this morning? What do we do with these realities? Let me give you just three things as we close and digest these wonderful truths. The first is this remember how he looks at you. Remember how the Father looks at you in Jesus. Number two, 
we strive to be brought near. Let me give you some short quotes from three different Johns in church history. John Calvin, let us therefore labor more to feel Christ living in us. John Owen, labor therefore to fill your hearts with the cross of Christ. And Jonathan Edwards, we should labor to be continually growing in divine love. We work to be brought near by pressing into that love, by remembering how He looks at us. And then number three, let me read some more of Paul's words from Romans chapter 6. Number three is walk in newness of life. Romans chapter 6, we know that our old self was crucified with Him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has also been set free from sin. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law, but under grace. Nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to the cross I cling. Let's pray and then sing that together. Father in Heaven, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for the unchanging and unmatchable message of the Gospel. That only in Jesus are we made right. That in Jesus we die in order that we might live. Oh Father, as we continue to meditate upon these realities, may we be transformed by them as we are filled with the love of Christ, with the love of God for us in Christ, that we might in turn be instruments of righteousness and goodness to the glory of Your name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.